Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. For 33 months, from 1977 to 1980, the nightclub Studio 54 was the place to be seen in Manhattan. A haven of hedonism, tolerance, glitz, and glamour, Studio 54 was hard to gain entrance to and impossible to ignore with news of who was there filling the gossip columns daily. Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager, two college friends from Brooklyn, succeeded in creating the ultimate escapist fantasy in the heart of the theater district. With unprecedented access to co-owner, co-founder Ian Schrager, Studio 54 tells the whole unvarnished story for the first time with a treasure trove of rare footage. Director Matt Tiernauer, known for such films as Valentino, The Last Emperor, Scotty, and The Secret History of Hollywood, and Citizen Jane, constructs a vivid, glorious portrait of the disco-era phenomena and tells the story of two friends who stuck together through an incredible series of highs and lows. Once again, we're so honored and thrilled to have joining us today again on Film School Radio, and that is Matt Tiernauer, the director of this wonderful new documentary, Studio 54. Matt, welcome back to Film School. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is something that uh, is in, for a lot of people, this goes back a ways, the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, something that is just sort of a, a, a cultural reference and not necessarily something a lot of people remember. What was it about this particular time and place that drew you to uh, to do this uh, documentary? Well, New York in that period is fascinating uh, in general. In fact, the period itself is more fascinating to me than Studio 54 itself ever was, although the opportunity to do a deep dive on um, a cultural phenomenon like this Thing that appeals to me a lot. Remember, New York City was just coming out of a near scrape with bankruptcy in 1977, the founding year of Studio 54. There's that famous tabloid headline, Ford the City Drop Dead, uh, <laughs> meaning that President Ford wouldn't bail the city out. Right. And uh, it had all the hallmarks of, of a uh, place in, in disarray. I mean, crime through the roof, the Bronx is burning, that's that period. It's kind of New York of taxi driver and escape from New York. Mm-hmm. In the middle of all this, on um, 54th Street, West 54th Street, just off of 8th Avenue, where all the peep shows were, of golden memory, <laughs> uh, was this theater that was abandoned. It had been the theater where the incredibly erudite game show, What's My Line, was uh, broadcast. And uh, it was just a relic of old New York. And that was where Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager opened up what became the greatest nightclub of all time, Studio 54. So there's this push-pull. The city is falling apart. It's at its low ebb. Uh, Muggings and murders everywhere. Uh, No money. And the most glamorous thing ever to happen to the city happens right in the middle of all that, (laughs) in the worst neighborhood in Manhattan. So uh, I love the the kind of contrasting um, 
uh, tones of all that. And that's kind of where the, the story takes off. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And I love the way you, you opened this, uh, your answer to this about New York in that period of time, because in addition to what we're going to be talking about with Studio 54, you also had the uh, sort of the rise of the punk movement, new wave. Uh, the, a lot of the uh, sort of uh, performance artists of the era were in full spring. Uh, um, Basquiat was around. Warhol obviously was still in the, in the picture quite a bit. You had the uh, beginning of Saturday Night Live, sort of a, a cultural icon in, on, onto itself in that era, 1977, 78. And so there, it, you're right. Out of this sort of wreckage of New York comes this amazing amount of cultural uh, influence, cultural uh Art, let's just say art, and and a reaction to what was happening maybe in in New York itself. Um, how how much did I think you know? It's because New York was cheap. You know, think about it. New York yeah. was like rents were low, and Soho's happening. Yeah, because those buildings are abandoned, and artists can squat. So it's it's a fertile environment, uh, and I, that was that was indeed fascinating to uh, study. And you're right, it is a renaissance in a way yeah. uh, in that period, looking back. But I'm sorry, your question. No, no, and, and to your point, I mean, there, but there had to be people of significant vision, whether it be in the arts or in, or in theater or, or in whatever it was, that were ready to, uh, to saw the, this opportunity and took advantage of it. Which is remarkable. I mean, you you think about the the depth and breadth of the artists in of this era. It's staggering, really. Yeah, we'll go back to Warhol um, briefly. You know, the factory was in you know it was in a couple places, but one place was around Union Square, and these buildings are now high rent buildings. You you know you couldn't have that much space right in the middle of everything at the time. But right. uh, so a Warhol wouldn't be existing in in the middle of Manhattan today right, right. studio 54 you would never be able to get that much space yeah. you never be able to afford it so i what the great opportunity that rubel and schrager um had was that period when two outer borough guys because they're both sort of like lower middle class jewish kids from brooklyn yeah. could dream big and make it to manhattan and make it in manhattan uh, this was fascinating to me. It's really the triumph of the meritocracy. Mm-hmm. It's the generation of the children of immigrants who were uh, the beneficiaries of the state school system. They went to Syracuse University, which is kind of like the Harvard of the outer boroughs, and they um, were high achievers uh, who had an out-of-the-box idea, just like completely soaked in ambition, and they went for it, and the door was open right at that time, also because the WASP establishment that had run things was kind of dying out or really losing its power base at this time. It was a much more open city, and studio that's a big part of the studio story across the board, not just from a kind of entrepreneurial perspective, that's the origin of it, but the cultural perspective, the constituency of studio, which was, um, this kind of coalition of uh, outsiders, really, yeah. um, and uh, insiders, too. And Studio blended all of those things uh, to perfection. 
Yes, they did. Well, let's talk a little bit about Steve and Ian. And uh, a big part of the success of this film, Studio Fifty Four, has to do with the access that you were able to, um, uh, that you had to Ian Schrager, the co-founder, as, long, as well as Steve Rubell. Uh, was I assume that that was a, a key part of moving forward with the project? Once you you had uh, Ian sort of signed up to to really open up about the the history of Studio Fifty Four. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, Ian's participation really is the genesis of this because he never talked before. It's been forty years plus now, and uh, it wasn't a story he wanted to tell. Fitzgerald famously says there are no second acts in American life. Well, Schrager defies that. Yeah. He went on after the demise of Studio 54, which I'm sure we'll get to yeah. uh, in a moment <laughs> yes, uh, in detail, to become one of the great hotel barons of, of history, really. Yeah. Uh, he's a very successful hotel owner, developer, and real estate developer. So he did not want to talk about this because it really... Uh, drew attention to something that uh, ended badly for he and Steve Rubel. Yeah. Uh, but finally, after four decades, uh, he was willing, it seemed to me, to tell the story, and I um, kind of got my foot in the door that way. We were, we've were we known each other a while because I wrote about him in my capacity as a writer for Vanity Fair magazine. And he was kind of poking around a bit saying, well, do you think a movie... You know, you make films, do you think a movie about this would be interesting? I said, well, if you talk, it would be very interesting. <laughs> yeah. He did. Yeah, he does. He does. And he's frank and he's honest. And there are some very difficult things that come up in your conversations with him that he is w- willing to uh, to talk about. And as we've talked about, which you mentioned, it's the first time in 40 years that he's he's spoken. I only knew of Steve Robel when I'm old enough to remember that time when it was when it was the thing. And all I knew was Steve Rebell. I never didn't. I didn't even know until I watched this movie that there was someone else involved in Studio Fifty Four. Uh, and uh, so let's talk about this sort of. They became friends in college, and uh, tell us a little bit about Steve and Ian's uh, relationship. Yeah. So the origin is kind of like stickball Brooklyn. Okay. Um, it's the Jewish neighborhoods of Brooklyn. They're both from you know adjacent parts of the borough. They both go to Syracuse University and meet each other there, really. And um, the people I talked to who knew them then said you could kind of see the sparks that would lead to this enormous overnight success even back then. Uh, Steve starts right out of school a chain of steak restaurants called Steak Loft, which are <laughs> I mean, the origin of Studio 54 being in, like, a middle-class steak and ale chain is, is crazy in and of itself. Uh, Ian's an attorney, uh, and goes to law school, and then they're in their 20s and want to get into business together uh, doing something other than steak restaurants because the steak restaurants aren't doing well. And uh, Schrager kind of bails Steve out as a, his attorney, and then they are stuck with these um, restaurants that they want to turn into discotheques. And in some, they do, actually, but uh, one of them's the only one that anyone remembers is called the Enchanted Garden, which was in Brooklyn. Uh, there was one in New Haven, too, I think, mm-hmm. briefly. Mm-hmm. And this was the precursor to Studio 54. 
this outer borough nightclub, um, which was on a golf course. They saw some success there, and then they were thinking big and said, we got to go to Manhattan and make it a Manhattan. And they went around looking for places to open. The, you know, I really think they were shooting for the moon. They wanted to open the greatest nightclub. It seems almost too much of a folly to be true that this was the, the narrative. But uh, they found this abandoned theater. They get the lease, and they only have six weeks to open studio. It's from basically disused TV studio inside an old theater, six weeks, and you know a couple hundred thousand dollars to transform it, and they did. Yeah. They made it. Yeah. By uh, mid-April of 1977, it was ready to go. They practically uh, had crowds breaking down the door on opening night. Yeah. It was an instant overnight success, and Rubel, who was the face of the club, Schrager was Mr. Inside, Rubel was the extrovert, uh, people person. Rubel goes from obscurity to world fame overnight. Uh, and in that first week, yeah, it was sealed. I mean, they were number one. It's amazing. But, um, but first, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Matt Tiernauer, and he's the director of a new film, a documentary film called Studio 54. The opening was a sensation. It immediately put them on the map and really kind of the in the vanguard of nightlife in New York City. And I want to talk about, sir, you mentioned it earlier. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of the cultural impacts that uh, that were that were being that had an influence on Studio 54 and and how it impacted the greater society. It, it seems to me that we were uh in kind of the very nascent stages of a celebrity cultural sort of explosion. And Studio 54 either was one of the first or maybe at, around the time became the place to be for celebrities. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, okay. So I love this aspect of it because we're caught in this period of celebrity hell right now, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, the, let's call it the, the world of the Kardashians. Uh, but the the really heavy part of that is Trump himself, who's uh, kind of like a perver perversion of media celebrity uh, as president. Uh, all of this, I think, has its origins um, in the modern era at the time of Studio. Um, studio was the big international uh, arena for a new age of celebrity that emerges in the late 70s. Um, the media shifts in the 70s. It becomes less traditional. A magazine like People Magazine, which is founded in the mid-70s from Time, Inc., uh, changes, the impact of that's just huge. It changes the whole tone and tenor of media. Media was not so frivolous before then. Mm-hmm. And uh, celebrity culture, which fed off of Hollywood and the music business, was being covered in a different way. Um, there just weren't magazines that had movie stars and pop stars on the cover before. It was, it was quite rare. Um, and TV and tabloid newspapers and even serious newspapers start to cover celebrity in a different way. And the photographers, the paparazzi and the the media, TV news, local news becomes much more kind of frivolous in this time.
time, just walks the studio. They're waiting outside because so many famous people went there, and it was such a haven for fame and fed off of it that it became kind of like a lodestar for that. And these images just go around the world. Studio wasn't just a New York City phenomenon. It was a worldwide popular thing. Now, um, Warhol, who I think turns out to be the, the great artist of certainly the second half of the 20th century, if not the entire, um, uh, and also a philosopher, uh, says famously, every, in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. This sound kind of comes true at Studio 54, where the whole premise was that the, the dance floor was the stage and the dancers and the club goers were the performers, and right. people really did feel that way there. Right. Uh, Warhol also said it was a dictatorship at the door and a democracy on the dance floor. So, yes, it was very hard to get in there, but once you were in, there was this sort of ecstasy of freedom where the nobodies and the somebodies would kind of intermingle and no one really cared and there wasn't this kind of like uh, weird tension and unfamous. Everyone felt gloriously famous for the evening there. Um, the, what's that What's that remind you of really? It's kind of like a, a pre-taste of Instagram celebrity in a certain way. And then also these concepts that we all are plagued by now, FOMO, fear of missing out, Studio 54 virtually invented that. Yeah. Um, this culture of scarcity that they create with the velvet rope, and then um, everyone becoming addicted to going there every night uh, just got to people. It just rewired people's brains, really, certainly in New York City. But people would fly in from all over the world just to go there. Uh, it, it really had a big impact. And um, it wasn't just a place for famous people. It was a place for... Um, anyone who who could get in and become part of an extended family in a certain way. Uh, it's, it's very elitist, but it's also very democratic inside its elitism. There's a bit of a contradiction to it. Right. In the, in the last minute I have with you, because I do think this is a vitally important part of the story of Studio 54, has to do with gay culture uh, and how it impacted not only the music that was being played there, but this it it is it pre-AIDS. It is a point in which there is a, a, a generally speaking, much more um, pro- profile and visibility for the gay culture, gay men and gay women. So there, this is a, to me a huge part of what we're talking about in terms of culture. All kinds of different things were going on there. Um, do, do you do you agree that that, that that had a significant impact on on, on Studio Fifty Four? Yeah, Studio 54 was an expression of a dominant gay culture in New York City at the time. It was just this rise of, uh, of gay lifestyle, if you want to call it that. I shudder as those words pass my lips, but um, <laughs> just because I don't like the word lifestyle. Right. But uh, there was a kind of gay moment happening, and uh, it was just driving the culture. Yeah. Studio, you know, but in disco, let's go back a step. Disco was a kind of fusion of African-American and gay underground dance culture. This was this moment where those two things started to blend, and it was really magical. People just were so high off this uh, moment of acceptance and uh, cultural blending, and it was really fun. Like, nightlife hadn't been this fun or this this 
uh, kind of invigorating um, for a while. Yeah. And uh, it was a very druggy time. It was a very sexually permissive time. Gay culture has uh, a kind of a lot of sexual permissiveness in this moment. Uh, and it defines it. Some people even maintain the studio was a gay club, kind of cloaked as a, as a straight club or, uh, you know, kind of pansexual paradise. But right. people really maintain it was a, mostly a gay club. Well, okay, whatever. Uh, people loved it, and it, it functioned well. But for me, the third act of the film, however, has to confront the unspeakable tragedy and horror of the 70s giving way to the early 80s and the uh, advent of the HIV-AIDS crisis, because so many yeah. of the constituents and the people who made the club, including Steve Rubell himself, uh, were uh, were killed by uh, the HIV-AIDS yeah. crisis. They, they did not survive it. And it's such a sad, um, horrific thing to confront. Uh, it was such a moment of freedom, the late 70s, what was then called gay liberation, which was alongside women's liberation as a kind of moment of freedom and, and a cry for equal rights, was flourishing. That movement changes entirely in the 80s. It transforms into something else that is very important to us today, um, not only the queer people, but everyone, because now we have gay marriage, and just, just the origins of that were a political movement that were a reaction. But the 70s itself was a very free time for people of um, same sexual orientation, and studio was uh, really, I think, the, one of the great venues uh, where that was expressed. Well, you speak of the tragedy of AIDS and, and the loss of so many people. I would say that w one of the lingering legacies of this era, and of sp specifically of Studio 54, is has to do with, from that point forward, gay culture and gay and lesbian people were no longer in the shadows, and they could not be ignored any longer. They could not be pushed to the margins any longer. That is, I, I think, some part of what happened in that in that in that period of time as well. Absolutely, and it was expressed openly at the studio. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much. I've gone over my time, and I, I appreciate you you're, you're spending a little more time with us today. Again, the film is called Studio Fifty Four. It, I, I mentioned it's opening here in in uh, in Orange County at the Laguna Niguel Rancho uh, Niguel Theater, and other places. You can go to the Zeitgeist Film dot com website to find out all the information you'll need to know about it and matt tiernauer i want to thank you so much again for your work obviously terrific work you've done over the years continued success and thank you again for coming here again on the film school thank you it's always a pleasure thank you You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.